Welcome to the Meeple Surf Show, Designers Discussing Design. We're on episode 51, and it's all in the cards. I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, we have a few fantastic guests, but before we get there, we also have a wonderful special co-host, uh, no stranger to the show, really uh, probably our fourth most common person on the show, I would guess. Would you say that, son? Yeah, he, he's not saying. He doesn't want to be statistically <laughs> wrong. <laughs> He's worried about the efficiency of that call. So, uh, but we welcome John Gilmore. How you doing, man? Hello. Good. How are you guys doing? I'm, I'm, doing I'm doing excellent. It was a fantastic day of game development, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to talking about uh, card games this evening and just the the interesting pros and cons and component restrictions that come along the way when thinking about card design. Uh, but before we get there, uh, Sen, what have you been up to? I've just been uh, testing some games uh, with Jesse today. Um, we actually haven't inked the deal yet, but we've got a, a pretty big license uh, as of yesterday, so uh, that's a good one um, that we'll be able to talk about in the near future, we hope. Um, and, yeah, so there's two games that we signed yesterday, pretty much. Pretty much in the bag, so um, we're just getting all the final finalization on the paperwork done um, and the numbers. And so today I was testing a couple of games with him that are actually for a different company, for Action Phase, uh, that he's working on with Travis and Nick. Um, and then a couple of games of Jay's and mine that we're looking at. And then just chatting with Josh Capel about some other games that we're co-designing. Um, and then Jonathan and I and Jay have to get our asses in gear for um, yes. something really soon. <laughs> uh, <Absolutely>. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, we've got a game coming out. That we, well, it's not coming out, but we want it to come out, and we want it to be the bestest <laughs> representation of this game ever. Um, John, what have you been playing lately? Um, tonight was game night, so I got to play uh, Mistfall, which I really like. Uh, it's a card-driven... Oh. Uh, uh, cooperative fantasy game, and I played uh, Steampunk Rally. So two kid starters that just ah, delivered. Hey, give a shout out for Roxley, one of our sponsors. Yes, yeah, so a good Canadian game with uh, all Canadian design, art, and publication. What do you think of it? Yeah, it was really good. I really liked it. It's a nice race game. I only played it two players. I'm really excited to play it with eight mm -hmm. because it's yeah, all yeah, sim right? simultaneous drafting and simultaneous turns. So. I think it'll play pretty well with eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very excited about that. That simultaneous play just makes a bunch of people able to play the game and it not hurt the playtime. So, very excited about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's, it's wacky races. You're, you're building these machines and racing, and you know, stuff's blowing up throughout the entire race. So it's it's a lot of fun. Man, I loved wacky races when I was a kid. Absolutely adored that show. Oh yeah, I would I would make a game about that. Yeah, it totally could have been rethemed that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, oh, speaking of Kickstarters, I played uh, Two Rooms and a Boom this yeah. weekend with the kids. Well, I'm going uh, to give a shout-out for a Kickstarter. Yeah. We, you know, great sponsor of the show, Toy Vault has yeah. Recall of Cthulhu. So if you're looking for a, a really cute uh, kind of memory game, it's tiles. There's a kid's version versus an adult advanced variant. Check them out on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. 
for it. And then I played uh, King Clenko's Dead Men Tale No Tales, which is a co-op pirate game from Minion. Yeah, what's your really game? Yeah, it's fun. It was. Uh, it's kind of like pirate Flashpoint. You're putting out fires on the ship, and but it's cool because the um, the fire can expand to a point where you get the powder kegs exploding in the ship, and then they cause little um, chain reactions all through the ship. We lost because we chain reacted so much so that it blew up the ship. <laughs> nice. That nice. was bad. Uh, what else? I played Las Vegas, which is a good uh, game by uh, Rudiger Dorn. Um, and what else did we play? Oh, Code Names, of course. Yeah. Code Names. That seems yeah. to be hitting the table a lot around. I I I got to play. Actually, it's been a while. I got to play Kingdom Builder today. Oh. I really enjoy that game, but also it's one of these games that it's simple, but it's hard to say. It's like like explaining. It's it feels harder to explain than it should be. Yeah, like, I'd rather whole, just show like, it. <laughs> the, the whole the whole rule of like. Like, you have to go on that terrain if you're touching it, but if not, then you can go anywhere. That's, mm-hmm. like, hard to get people to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. I digress. Yes. And so, we're running out of time, so let's just jump right into our topic. <laughs> what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about card games. We are talking about card games with yes. these two fine gentlemen here. We have with us Eric Lang, from all the way from two hours away in Canada. Yeah. Torontonia, Canada. A little farther away. We have Mr. Paul Peterson. Uh, hi guys, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Doing great. Excellent. Uh, Jerry, you want to start the questions off? Was that me? Oh uh, or... yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, you. All right, I'm me. I will you, go. First. You're Daryl, so. Excellent. Well, I mean, <laughs> is that a question? <laughs> that is a question. So that's why. Is I... it you? Yes. The answer is yes. It got meta on me. So, so I mean, right off, right off the bat, I'm going to jump uh, to Eric with a question. A lot of people oh, know, I know, a lot of people know of a variety of LCGs or different card games that you've designed from Game of Thrones to Star Wars. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit why you got into card games? What, what, why was that kind of like your, your niche early on? I know it's not now, but... Everyone kind of assumes that's one of your needs. It's not now. It's um, now you do everything. So, uh, well, I mean, uh, so I've been playing card games since I was a kid, right? I played, um, I played Phase Ten in Germany when I was growing up. Yeah, remember that game? That yeah, the, the awesomeness. I love that game. Um, I loved that game as a kid. Uh, I played Uno and all, um, Crazy Eights. I played all sorts of Hoyle's games in high school, uh, and uh, when. I mean, when Magic hit, Magic the Gathering changed my life completely, right? Like, D&D made me a gamer, but Magic made me want to be a game designer. It was, it just, it sparked the thing in me that made me, like, it, it, A, it changed my entire vocabulary. It changed my gaming vocabulary, changed my understanding of what games could be, um, what scope games could be. It defined the idea of metagame, all that stuff. And I've always gamed as a lifestyle anyway. And so I was like, oh, this we, this is a possibility to make games larger than the box. It's amazing. So that's pretty much all I've been doing. Uh, and since then, it's... I mean, I don't know how many games has it been, but uh, I, every, time I, every time I think about doing a new card game, I get excited about it again. And in fact, i got another one coming out next year. 
Cool. And I oh, think wow. uh, they were saying that it's 294 entries in your BGG page. So it's what? Cool. Oh, sure, but that's little. A lot of those are little chapter packs from yeah, uh, really like single cards. card expansions, right? So single card expansions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the new Uvi Rosenberg. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul, same question to you. How what's uh, your back? Or how'd you get into it? And what? Um, yeah, like like Eric, I played a lot of card games as a kid. Um, my my great grandmother actually knew how to play about a million different kinds of solitaire. And whenever I go to visit her, I was lucky enough that she was alive for a lot of my life. Um, whenever I go to visit her, she we'd play like dozens of different kinds of solitaire. We'd play double solitaire, single solitaire, and accordion, and just like crazy crazy solitaire variants that she'd teach me and. And we play, and that sort of sparked a love of just cards in general. Um, and then, you know, Uno and all of those cards too. Um, and kind of like, kind of like Eric too. Uh, you know, when I got older, I played a lot of I played a lot of card games, a lot of board games, a lot of miniatures games. And then, of course, Magic came along and sort of changed everything, especially for me, because that's how I that's how I got my start as a game designer was working on Magic. So. Yeah, so ma magic seems to have touched a lot of lives in, in a lot of positive ways. Uh, Eric, tell me, in your case, what is the fascination with cards? What can cards do that nothing else does in terms of game components? Well, I mean, so I guess there's two levels to that, right? There's the really broad, almost existential level that, like, cards are the best delivery mechanism for... Um, a consistent of mystery, right? So consistent on one side, different on the other side, right? It's kind um, of like a, what are those things frosted on one side and <laughs> beat on the yes. other? Yes, card games are the cereal of the gaming world. Yes. Right? So broadly, <laughs> broadly speaking, they're the best delivery vehicle for that kind of experience. So if you ever want to, if you want to make games about bluffing um, or about uh, hidden information, cards are just the best for that, right? You can use other components, but cards are best. Mm -hmm. um, uh, why um, card game? No, like more narrow, like living card games, lifestyle card games are good at what they do because they uh, they abstract a concept better than any other game, whilst uh, leaving room for uh, for flavor rather than narrative for the most part. Right. So you can do like Magic is one of my favorite examples. Right. Magic is a flavorful, flavorful game. Right. It doesn't really tell a story. Uh, I mean it. It does. They have novels and all that stuff, but the game itself doesn't doesn't weave a complex uh, like um, a narrative by Homer, right? It's just, but they they um, they give you really, really. You can abstract the idea of cosmic wizards battling, summoning creatures, and battling each other with really, really simple, elegant mechanics in ways that other games can't, because other games carry, especially more haptic visual games like board uh, board games or miniature games. They carry an expectation of simulation, right? Because you have all these toys. Um, cards don't they? Just they're pictures on flat surfaces. Um, that's that's why I think that's like that's why I was able to get away with so much stuff, uh, so much quote unquote abstraction in really flavorful games. Excellent, excellent. I I gotta jump to Paul. Uh, uh, one of the one of the games that really brought me back into the hobby. Uh, that I got really excited about, especially showing all my friends, and uh, even if they weren't gamers, was Guillotine. And I found that a really fantastic game to to 
play, you know, after dinner, you know, people are over, anything like that. And um, just recently, I remember stumbling across, and I was trying to find it, uh, who referenced it, but recently on a blog, someone mentioned that uh, there's a card that you designed in it that you said was your biggest mistake. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about the story there? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Daniel Solis did that. Yeah, um, Solis. Yeah, yeah, we had a uh, we were, we were actually just having a conversation on Twitter and and that came up and I told I, I talked about why that card was uh, one of my biggest mistakes. Um, it is so the card is Callus Guards. It um, allows a player to stop line manipulation because that's what the game is all about is is moving the nobles around and it just locks down it the the line. So that, like, on the next turn, you know what's coming, basically. That's that's the goal of the card, so that the player yeah. can be like, that one that's three cards away will still be there on my next turn. But the problem is that it uh, doesn't have an off switch. I mean, one of the problems is that it doesn't have an off switch. So, uh, I mean, it does. The player can choose to get rid of it at any time. But what ends up happening is that they like the card that they're going to get next, and then they like to keep it locked longer to um, make the other people get bad cards, or because the next card is good as well. And it, but what's really wrong with the card is that it destroys the fundamental fun loop in the game, which is playing cards that move the nobles around, and the the feeling of uh, I did something clever, and instead of getting the piss boy, I got Marie Antoinette. Uh, so it 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 shuts off the fun of the game, and um, that so th that's why I consider it my biggest mistake. Like at the time, I was very excited about. It. I mean, it's it, I thought about it a lot. I had ar argument, not really arguments. We had discussions about whether it should work the way it does or another way. And in the end, we fell down on this way that that, that it got published, and we were I was happy with it. And uh, but you know now looking back, I'm like. I, it, it really just takes, uh, it just turns off the fun while it's in play for everybody except the guy who played it. And uh, uh, so it, now, now I, when I, when I teach somebody how to play, and this actually happens at conventions, like I'll, I'll come up to people who are playing guillotine and I'll say, uh, excuse me, and I'll, and I'll grab their deck and I'll rifle through it and take off the callous cards and be like, um, don't play with this card. And, <laughs> uh, so you've heard it here, folks. Everyone, go to your guillotine deck. Find Cal's cards. Throw it out. No, no, no. I'm, keep, I'm keeping mine because those oh. are going to be collector's items. And Paul's going around ripping them up at Come on. Legacy I'm not destroying people's property. <laughs> uh, John, you're next. Oh, okay. Um, Eric, you. Uh, a lot of your names have a lot of expansions for them. This is a question from uh, Suzanne and uh, Michael Hubenmore. Um, how do you go about discovering new design space in your existing designs? Uh, what's your what's your process generally? Uh, <laughs> distraction, <laughs> lots and lots of distraction. So it used to be this has evolved a little bit over time. It used to be that I would just uh, sit down and play the game a lot. Uh, post publication, play with a lot of different people and go through the usual like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this that this game doesn't already do? Um, and that that's a perfectly fine process and I actually recommend it for a lot of people. But I found lately for me probably as I get old and uh, senile, it's like that I just find to, I find myself indulging distraction a lot more as I work on more games that 
uh, at a time than I used to. And they feed each other. They feed each other a lot. And I get a lot of my best ideas while thinking about something else. So generally, if a, if a card game's coming out, I, I don't play it for like a, several months. Then come back to it with completely fresh eyes, look at it, and I've forgotten everything I did for it. And I'm like, oh my god, what, who designed this? Right? And some of it comes, stems from trying to fix old mistakes. Some of it stems from uh, like my fresh eyes look, wanting to take the game back under uh, my wing and... Uh, and work on it. And the other thing is, of course, for Fantasy Flight Games, a lot of the design work is done in-house by the uh, by the FFG designers. So generally, for an LCG, I usually design the first year's worth of cards or so. Uh, even then, with a lot of uh, with a lot of input from the developers, and then after a while, they do most of the development, and I just do consulting. Uh, and okay. I like it much better that way because <laughs> keeping track of uh, like five different card games is crazy. <laughs> I love when people ask me questions about my rules questions about a game I put out and I have to think for a while because it's gone through so many iterations as it is. It's like, what did we end up with? Because it may be very different from what I remember as the primary use of that rule. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. I happened to be at Gen Con actually with a with the game that was just recently published. Somebody was asking me about a tiebreaker rule. I'm like, oh, uh, let me call I my producer. Happens all the time. Uh, Paul, what value do you personally place on creating like a new mechanism, like smash up kind of did the deck blending thing instead of the deck building thing? Um, but, you know, if you were to sit down today and start designing a game, would it be I'm going to design the next big thing or I'm going to design a good game? What is it for uh, you? Um, I think, uh, I mean, I would always like to design the next big thing, but really... Like when I, I, I usually have a goal for a game. Like Smash Up's goal was that I really liked the deck building, but I wanted it to be simple, and that it came out there. Uh, it came out that way. Um, like, but I've got, you know, I've, I've been telling the story about one of my games that, that uh, hopefully will come out soon. That I designed. It's a worker placement game, but I designed it because I loved Agricola, but Agricola is so takes so long to play. So I designed a pretty fast one. And then I immediately shelved it as soon as Lord of Waterdeep came out because it totally filled that niche, right? I, it was no longer a, it was no longer uh, uh, filling that niche. But then uh, a little while ago, it sort of felt to me like it was it was opened up, like uh, like there was there was room for more Lords of Waterdeep, basically. So I revisited it, and and uh, uh, a couple companies were looking at it, and so uh, but it, it was sort of answering a question. Uh, but I can also hang my hat on a lot of things like uh, maybe uh, a racing game. I'm excited to do a racing game, or I've never done an RPG, so I'm uh, working on an RPG and things like that. Things that I feel, you know, fill a niche or challenge me or have a theme that I really like. Those are all the things that sort of grab and, and start working around. But, but like, you know, Eric will tell you, Jonathan will tell you that, uh, you know, we have closets full of ideas that we start on and start working on, and what we work on at any particular time is what's exciting to us. So uh, it, it, that can change very rapidly. Are you seriously working on an RPG, Paul? Yeah, I am. Oh, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. No, <laughs> think about it as a Paul Peterson RPG. It is not. I'm not working on Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> okay. Nice. Well, actually, this leads into a question uh, that I have for Eric. Uh, I remember uh, semi-recently you had made, uh, I think it was a Twitter or a Facebook update, saying that you were throwing out the old files. 
and uh, and giving yourself, you know, this uh, this intimidating but also exciting new challenge of coming up with new things. And tell us a little bit about from a designer perspective why why you did that and what that did for you. Uh, so I mean, the short version is I'm insane. Long... <laughs> That's what I was looking for. No. So the long the long version goes. Um, I've been. I was gradually becoming a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more complacent over the last few years, uh, without really noticing it. And every year at conventions at Gen Con and Essen, the big convention in Germany, I always go. I spend at least a day to go look at all the cool new games out there, and I usually find at least ten to fifteen things I'm really excited about. Last year, uh, I got. I looked around. I was just bored. I looked around. I was like, eh, it's nothing really exciting to me. And I mean, you. I mean, you guys are. Are around now, right? Like it's we have never been in a more exciting, right. diverse, innovative time. So it's like, well, it's clearly not the industry; it's me. Um, and so uh, something took hold of me. But I, I generally go by my gut for the for most things, at least to start with. And something told me, like, you know what? You got way too much unfinished crap sitting on your computer that you're just that's just nagging at you that you haven't worked on for years. Just get rid of it. Don't look at it. Get rid of it, um, and I did. That's so I made sure don't look at any of these files. I got rid of everything. Uh, I, I knew if I looked at it, I want to keep it. And um, so there's a psychological phenomenon, which uh, phenomenon, the psychological state, uh, which uh, I'm not don't remember what it's called. But you do in a creative endeavors, you actually do pay a uh, you do pay a cognitive cost in bandwidth for all, all all these unopened or sorry all these unresolved creative projects that you're working on. Uh, and it's especially ones that nag at you, especially ones that because you like you feel like oh I'm going to go back and work on this at some point. Uh, oh, what about that idea? And it builds up. And so at some point, I mean, I had like 50 different games, like 50 different Euro games that I wasn't that interested in making anymore because there are better ones on the shelf. So I'm like, ah, I'll just I'll throw it all away. See what happens. See what happens if I don't have anything to fall back on. Uh, and since then, it was really awesome. I mean, on the plane ride home from that convention. Uh, I designed three, like the the easy twenty five percent of three new games on the plane right there, uh, and actually one of them is coming out maybe like this year, early next year. Um, so it's exciting. I mean, I'm back up to like thirty five new games anyway in my folder, but it's thirty five new things. Right, they're fresh. That I'll, that I'll throw away next year. They're not nagging at you yet. Oh, they are. <laughs> There's a, there's a video by a gentleman called Zay Frank called uh, Brain Crack, and he talks about how having those projects in your head and then not ever working on them is a lot of times, you know, the thing that you make is never going to be as good as the thing that's in your head. And I tell a lot of people, you know, get it, get it out. You know, don't just sit on that idea for a long time. Right. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, the thing you did, when I tell it to people, it's scary, but, I mean, it's, it's really exciting. Um, so question for, yeah. Question for Paul: uh, What's your position? This is from Suzanne Sheldon. Uh, what's your position on flavor text, and what, do you, what are your thoughts on it? My position on flavor text—that's really interesting. Um, I, I'm in favor of it. Um, <laughs> You're pro flavor text. I am pro flavor text. I will go on the record and say I am pro flavor text. Oh, uh, now I have to come out against it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, we'll start the debate. Eric, and you take the con, and debate is now. That's right. Uh, resolved flavor text is good. Yes. Uh, uh, well, I'm not sure about what what to say about it. I I, I think that it's 
really valuable. I mean, it, there's a little bit of a, a push and pull on any particular card about like how much room it has, and uh, the card has to have as much space for its rule text as possible. And then a lot of times, flavor text is sort of becomes an afterthought, and it, it's always a little it's always a little sad when there's not enough flavor text. Um, you can have some very cool little stories that come out of uh, very small, uh, very small bits of text. Like uh, for uh, when we were doing the Apocrypha Kickstarter for Lone Shark, um, one of the one of the events around the, this was we all went on Twitter and we all wrote little Twitter stories. Um, God, I'm cool. what, yeah, I'm trying to remember what the hashtag was. It's like Fragment Friday, I think. Um, they were all <laughs> little. little Fragments of stories, but they were all sort of. If you if you just read them, you would get like you would know what the story was from beginning to end, and we did it all in a, like 140 characters, and they were they were creepy and scary, and it's really awesome to try to get that kind of emotion in in that kind of to, to make somebody feel that kind of emotion. In fact, uh, a friend of mine uh, told me that after reading my fragments. He wasn't sure he wanted to play the game anymore. If that was the kind of thing that was going to go on in the game, basically. <laughs> uh, so that's that's the power of flavor text, really. If you can, you know, take take the room that's left uh, and get the story of the card across, not ju and not just the story of the card, but also build the story of the entire game in these pieces of text and what you have available to you. I, I think it's very powerful. Eric, you had a follow-up? Yeah. Oh, I agree. Actually, Paul said uh, almost everything I was going to say, but like the, I agree. I'm a huge, huge fan of flavor text, and I, as the years go on, I actually become more and more a fan of it to the point where like, I used to never want to write flavor text for any of the cards games that I worked on. Now I do. I really, really do because um, I actually feel like it's a good design tool, uh, even thinking of it from a, a pragmatic point of view. Um, so, like, uh, I think of it uh, as an analogy to screenwriting, right? If you guys, uh, you guys have all read scripts, I'm sure, right? Mm -hmm. And you see, um, when you watch, like, the the action text and the, the the character text is what they're actually saying, and they often have voiceover text yep. that will accompany that. The relationship to voiceover text, to action text, and to character text is a lot is actually a lot like how I think about flavor text to rules text. But they're really cool. It adds context for a flavorful understanding of the card, and sometimes it even adds an extra little twist that helps players um, I, uh, iconicize. I'm not sure if that's a word, but I just <laughs> now. Like, iconicize the card and, um, and grok it. Like, there's a magic card that I love. One of my favorite cards ever is a... Uh, I don't even remember what the card is called. Honestly. But you remember the flavor text. But I remember the flavor text. Well, it's a, it's a gorilla. It's like a, some 4-3 gorilla for 4 that... that, that Vanilla that they always come up with, and he's like sitting there going raw right there in the in the uh, in the art, and the flavor text is, "I want a banana this big." <laughs> 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 that flavor text made that card legendary, right? and of course, and you you'll see people quote that all the time, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, oh, I was about to tell a story, but I don't think I'm actually I don't think I actually should, but it was about Star Wars. Ask me about in ten years. <laughs> Yeah. All right. We'll ask you in exactly. ten years. Ten years from today. Um, exactly. Eric, uh, speaking of designing card games and expansions for card games, let's talk Star Wars and expansions for the LCGs and whatnot. Um, do you leave yourself space for the next expansion? 
hooks mechanics-wise, or do you just kind of make the game and then say, oh, I better make something else up for the next part of it? Uh, yes. A little bit of both? <laughs> well, I mean, so, I, um, well, I, I mean, now at the point, if I'm designing a card game engine, right, I know that it's designed for expansion. So I basically, I, in a, I try to design for perfect world, assuming that the game's going to go on in perpetuity. Um, and so there has to be enough mechanical depth to, um, to provide expansions forever. But um, having said that, uh, I'm not a big believer in, like, in hooks in the core mechanics uh, as, to the, as the sole fodder for expansion, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily worried about putting enough uh, values on every card or enough icons on every card uh, to tweak because it's not like games that eventually explore every possible permutation of icons or numbers are not quite as interesting. Like I tried, I actually use, in my opinion, the abilities on cards are about 60 to 70 percent of the design, where the engine is only about 30 to 40 percent. And so, with with that in mind, the um, I do. I so when designing the cards, I try to leave. I actually do. I try to leave a lot of unresolved cool in the cards, right? So some obvious, some not. And um, like Richard Garfield, I think, did a really good talk about open-endedness in card design, and I pretty much mm. follow that to the letter, right? So we're, I try to design a lot of cards that have obvious effects on them, but they, they do leave, just the card itself leaves hooks for anything else, either through a semantic, uh, like a semantic hook or, uh, or, a, you know, or a combo hook or something or different types of damage in a damage game, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, a mechanic within, say, a faction or a color in a, in, or, or some division of, of a game, um, they will have major mechanics and minor mechanics. Mm -hmm. um, so so let's, let's use magic for an example. Like, uh, red. Red has direct damage. Uh, no problem. Everybody knows that. Um, but there's actually, lately, I've noticed a lot more cards that take control of the opponent's creature for a very limited period of time um, that, that started you know, with one card or two cards here and there, but now it's become sort of more of a major theme and something that you could grab for a set and say, in this set, we're going to flip it over and direct damage is going to be minor, but this, this, this uh, temporary control mechanic, we're going to highlight it, it's going to be major, we're going to make a lot more cards about it. And I, I, love, I love doing that in card games. Um, uh, especially if you're going to be making expansions that follow, you know, the, the, the divisions that are already there. Great stuff. I, I was just going to ask a follow-up question to you, Paul, about that, and you, you answered it all right. So <laughs> that's great. No, let's uh, let's actually maybe I, I'm I'm actually not sure if uh, there's cards involved in either of these, but I'm going to ask it anyways. I'm curious. Both of you are titans, so I'm curious. Uh, with that challenge, uh, have you have you integrated cards in your in your response to designing uh, a Titan game, or if you didn't, is there a reason you didn't decide to use cards? I'll throw this at Paul first. Um, well, I mean, my, my game has cards in it. It's a board game. It's a board and dice game primarily, okay. but the cards. But there's a card engine quality to it. Just like the briefest description of it, it's it's like a dice pachinko machine. Um, dice all start at the top of the board, and every round they move uh, one segment down the board, and then they hit uh, splits, sort of like pachinko balls hitting a peg and bouncing one way or another. 
they hit a split and then they travel one way or another. Um, but they don't have a, a, a standard mechanic for um, changing the dice. The dice all get changed by people's cards. That's their agency. So the dice are just sort of falling through the board, picking their path, and then the player's agency is, is cards, which gives you a lot of the things Eric was talking about earlier. It gives you uh, one of the things I love about cards is that it gives you uh, a randomization factor, but also some predictability as you learn what's in the deck and what's been played and what hasn't been played. So uh, and and secret information, things I know that you don't know. Like these are all wonderful parts of board and card games and. Uh, so I, you know, I, I te really tend to put cards in in most games I create just because I, I think that it's got all these wonderful form factors for for making the game better. So my Titan game has cards in it, even though it's uh, essentially a board game of dice. Sure, sure. No, I appreciate that. Um, and just anyone who doesn't know that's watching, first of all, uh, Calpy Games is one of our sponsors. We love them and. It's a really exciting uh, series that they took on. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, the Titan series is that uh, the the publisher decided to pursue a bunch of designers and give them the challenge of pursuing or making gateway games and games that, that are very accessible that you know the whole family could play and have a good time. And they kickstarted it with kind of this subscription model. So some of the games aren't even designed yet or in process. So uh, I guess I'll bounce the question to you as well, Eric. I don't know if even yours is designed yet. That's a great segue, actually. So mine is in process. Yes, okay. So does it involve uh, cards? Nope. It does now. <laughs> no, it does not. So well, actually, actually, that's a, uh, it's a minorly interesting story. So I, I designed a game for the Titan series. Um, I, I didn't know it at the time. I just I, I was coming home from a game cafe, and I, I had a cool idea for a game on the way home. And then when I got home, it's like, oh, this is this would be a pretty cool little gateway game, and it was a card game. Uh, then I had to repurpose that core engine for an emergency project for a publisher um, that I've iterated and iterated and iterated. And actually, Paul, that's the game I showed you at uh, oh, yeah. at PAX. Um, so it th that but that game has become completely has become so different from the original game that I've gone back to the original game. But I'm like, you know what? I don't even want it to be cards anymore. Uh, I wanted to be. Um, I thought. I thought a, a better form factor for it. Uh, so it actually, it will have asymmetrical information, but it won't be cards. Uh, it'll be and no cards and no special powers. Like, just not what I'm. It's that's not my wheelhouse. Possible. Uh, it yeah. is impossible. That's it's not. Called, that's, it's, that's it's, it's called chess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. It has special powers, but they're all covered in the rules, and the pieces don't break the rules by their nature. There we go. Ah, uh, okay. Hmm. Very good. Uh, next question's for uh, Paul. As uh, This is from uh, Suzanne again in the chat. Uh, uh, how much are you typically involved in the graphic design, the icon layout, the text layout, etc., in, uh, in your designs? Um, wow, that's a really good question. Well, that is not one of my talent sets. I am not a great artist. Um, so... My, uh, I'm involved to the extent that, like, uh, let's say for Smashup. Smashup has great artists. We, we get different artists for every faction. Um, we've got a wonderful graphic designer uh, over at AEG who is she, she's great. And uh, basically she 
lays it out, she picks the icons and things like that, and then uh, I just give feedback on things like that, which is probably for the best, because uh, you really don't want me doing any of that. I, I know where my talents lie, and I'll, I'll just stick with that. Absolutely. Oh, man, Paul is way too nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, I'm, I'm actually quite involved. Like, uh, and I do, and I have no talent either, which in I'm as an artist, so that's <laughs> you know the combination. combination. Well, I'm not saying I don't have opinions on the matter, but they let, right. Let, I've, I've been very lucky in the town of people, like especially going way back to Guillotine, like Christopher Rush did an amazing job with the graphic layout of that, and he picked artists that I would never have thought would do that, like Quentin Hoover doing Disney art was just like after he did like Doppelganger and these amazing fine line drawings of these gorgeous colors, and then he, but he also was so talented to do these brilliant Disney-esque uh, pictures. So I, I've been very lucky in my games that have come out in having the resources necessary to make them look good. It was Quentin's art that sold me on that game, to be honest. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, Quentin um, was I'm, awesome. So I don't, I don't have much talent as an artist, and I, I absolutely do not do art direction. Uh, I have really good producers that do that, but the, um, I do. I am really, really, really fussy um, and demanding and exacting about layout, like extremely so, like to the point of um, with and Car uh, Paul, you probably uh, I know you work with James Ernest a lot, and he has he's I think like me, right, really exacting about like you know what well, the prime real estate of a card is. The, yeah, the, he's he's exactly like that. The problem, well, the problem, the thing is that he's also brilliant at that. Like it's just not right. fair. He's so good as a game designer, and he's and his, his graphic design is uh, second to none. Like. Absolutely. So, like, I'm I'm very fussy about like where uh, about order of information, placement of information, and I mean I'm lucky that I work with a lot of graphic designers that are also super talented, and they and and they're also game that lo they love games too, so they they totally understand. But um, I actually do uh, I actually when I put a prototype together, I don't like do art or, uh, or or fills or anything like that, but I actually do consider like color choices and stuff like that for the board. Like I'll usually just make them color swaths, but uh, I mean, because I took art in school and, like, uh, I mean, up to the end of high school. Not, like, a real artist, but, uh, I like, there's a little bit of color theory in the pro uh, in the prototypes that I do but, um, to convey or to um, uh, or to carry specific emotions when you're looking at particular types of cards. So I do care about that kind of stuff, and I do usually put in notes for, the, like, developer notes for it. Um, and sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't, and when, so often when they don't, they do a better job. But um, I definitely have a lot of input on that. Hey Eric, other than the Gorilla Titan, what is one of your all-time favorite single cards ever from any game? Single favorite single cards from any game. Yeah. Wow. Um, so many. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get. Hmm. Oh, I just had so many options. Yeah, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. I think a little bit. Uh, I really, <laughs> I really, really like Exodia from Yu-Gi-Oh. I really like it, right? It's it's like if 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 you go to game design school, it like and, and you ever want to learn what not to do in a card game, <laughs> Exodia Cup hits every single one of those points. I love it though. Like it is the most dramatic expression of a card cycle I've ever seen in a game. And I don't. Uh, you guys may not even know the mechanics, but you probably have an inkling <laughs> of what it does just from the name. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a it's a series of, uh, I think it's five cards. Um, I don't even know the exact details, but it's like a bunch of body parts of this horror, uh, this 
god thing, Exodia, that if you manage to get all of them in play, you win the game. Just you win. That's it. Um, this is true. And they all come to, I mean, each one of them has a, um, each one of them has a, a little flavorful part that, you know, makes them decent on their own. And I'm not even a big fan of Yu-Gi-Oh! the game, but I love Exodia, and I've actually, several times, I've visited that well and tried to do it with a little bit more of a modern, um, uh, slightly more conservative take on it, but I absolutely love that space. Interesting. Um, I gotta, I gotta follow up uh, with Paul. Actually, your upcoming game, Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, Mike uh, gave it a shout out uh, when he was on our show before, and I was curious because after the show, I remember looking it up and uh, noticing there were 500 cards coming in the base game, and I was, I was. Uh, uh, amazed and, and horrified thinking as a designer. I was curious, when you make a game like that, do you make 500 cards? Or, is, like, what is the, the prototyping process like for for a game that's going to require so many cards like that? And any tips for people out there that are designing games that well, eventually are going to need, oh, I, maybe 550, I might be wrong. Well, the, that's, so the first thing is that that is correct. But you have to put that in context. When we did uh, Rise of the Moon Lords for Pathfinder, there's 1,300 cards that we designed right. on at the same time. Right. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things to do there. I mean, there's if you have the time to do it, there's a huge advantage there in that all the things we were talking about, like. We did 1,300 cards, but that's the base set plus the the what is it the six uh, the six ex- the expansion seven including the character deck right so that was that was across the entire breadth of the Rise of the Moon Lords and we did it again for Spell and Shackles Wrath of Wrath of the Righteous right that's that's just what we do for those games um, so if you have the time uh, there's a huge advantage to doing that because we can do all the things that we were talking about earlier like the you know, highlighting uh, highlighting mechanics as you go through. Um, you know, doing a bunch of this early on, but then changing it up later. Uh, you know, what the, what are the good parts for the paladin early? What are the good parts for the paladin late? Um, all of that is uh, so. There's a huge advantage, but it takes a huge amount of time. And honestly, it's wow. How do you, how do you learn how to do that? Well, I worked at Wizards of the Coast for five years. I worked on 11 different collectible card games, I think, while I was there. Um, so there's a whole lot of toiling at the card mines, as I like to say there. Um, yeah, I would start start smaller and work your way up. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't just dive into 1,300 cards at once. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, Eric, uh, what are your thoughts on... On digital prototyping, things like Tabletopia and uh, uh, Tabletop Simulator. This is a question from uh, Chris Schreiber. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I'll be have a disappointing answer. I've never used it um, at all. Like I, I'm old school. Like I, I make I make all my prototypes. I do my prototypes in InDesign. Um, InDesign when it's ready to play for prime time, and I just uh, do it on Excel or on just pieces of paper. Uh, early on in the process, and I just I print and cut them myself. I, I enjoy printing and cutting cards. It's therapeutic, like gardening. Um, I agree. So like I've I've never really I've never really found the the need to expedite that process at all. Um, so that's that's all I got. 
So yeah, it's, it's, I remember when we did the prototypes for Cloud, which is a game that's played on poker chips. Yeah, we, we had to cut little circles out that would fit inside our poker chip blanks and then spray mount them on there. It, after a while, we did, we were just watching movies and cutting little circles for hours and hours and hours. It was kind of a very therapeutic. <laughs> Paul, um, I, I asked Eric, but what is your number one most memorable card? I mean, for me, Piss Boy is definitely up there, but uh, what about you? Yeah, Piss Boy is definitely up there. Uh, Callus Guards is very memorable, since we've already talked about that. I, I mean, yeah, that's very memorable. Uh, so let me, there's one other thing that um, once upon a time at Winston's Post we had an in-joke that was, we, in every game we designed, we put in a card that was called a Force of Will, and it would always be a really good card. So I'm very <laughs> fond of cards that are called Force of Will, and nobody nobody's going to remember that in-joke because it lasted a very, very short period of time, but I, I liked it, and it sort of titillated me enough that, like, when we made the, the Geek deck, for uh, for for Smash Up, there's a card in it that's called Force of Will, but it's Will Wheaton, so it's Force of Will W I L instead. Yep. Eric, I'm, I'm uh, curious about when it comes. Oh, I have an echo. Do I have an echo? Do you guys? Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, one sec. Let me put headphones on. But I'll ask my question, Eric. Oh, uh, Eric, I'm curious, what do you think of the legacy effect of things like modifying cards with stickers and ripping cards and things like that? Do you think that's going to be more and more in the future, or, is, or does Rob have a, a hold on that and no one else is going to be doing it? Uh, hmm. All right, I have to be a little careful here. Um. <laughs> Eric may or may not be working on a game where the cards get modified up the course of play. So Paul will answer all my questions for the rest yes, of the show. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, I may well, ask so questions with strategic. Actually, I, I'm actually I'm all tapping real quick to make to see what I'm allowed to say here. Um, ah. there's, stuff, there's, there's stuff that's, that's a, I, we so, can stall for you all you want. Yeah, no problem. Oh, it's good. I, I think it's um, I think it's awesome. So. <laughs> so I yes, so I, yes, I also think I'm it's not, awesome. I'm not going to be the next thing in gaming, but it's, it's definitely going to be. It's going to be a niche as more people explore the space. Um, so there is, uh, yeah. So um, yeah, AG actually did announce a uh, a, a game uh, with a sort of legacy effect. Uh, called Epic Adventure, which is my original pitch for uh, for them uh, from a couple of years ago. I've been working on that for a very long time. Um, it's uh, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but it is yes. Uh, I spent many many months on uh, this concept, and it, yep. uh, I loved exploring the space. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to go back to it, but okay. uh, I I definitely I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much, and I I hope. That I hope the final product is as ambitious as we tried because it's, it's I mean it's gutsy especially for a publisher. Sure. Uh, well, maybe just to quickly follow up. Could you give any advice for anyone working or dabbling in that space? What were some things you learned that were you know new, you know warnings or or tips for? For well, legacy effects. Oh, sure. So there's, I mean, there's a, so there's a reason why the first legacy game was Risk Legacy, right? And why it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, Florgenberg, the legacy, right? It was, um, 
starting the point of legacy games is that they are um, they're momentum driven and they're linear and they do change the game forever, right? So that you it's really difficult. I mean, I'm sure like uh, Paul will tell you also if you know when you play like these, these big economic engine euro games that have that require some strategic setup, you have to start making some decisions at the very beginning of the game that you haven't even played yet. And you're like, oh well, I don't know what I'm. I don't know how I'm going to make these decisions. I have no context for it. It's going to ruin my one-hour game experience. Well, imagine that, but add permanence, right? So um, definitely, I mean, you want to go for something where the consequences, the consequences of every game do go up. They're noticeable from the beginning, but they do go up on a linear scale, right? Um, Think of it almost as if you're playing a massive multiplayer online game in uh, in Iron Man mode, right, or in hardcore mode. Diablo in hardcore mode is a good example. When your character dies, they're dead. So every under, like just understand the permanence of your decisions. So make sure that the weight of permanent lasting decisions is not too heavy in parts of the game that the players are not going to understand. Right? Um, it is difficult. Yeah, I think, too, that I'm sure the way this is approached in most of these games, too, is understand the tree you're going down and understand what the game will look like when players go down each of these trees, when they tear that card up or when they mark out that rule or they write in the new rule. Um, and, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of space there. I mean, in some sense, Pathfinder and Apocrypha are legacy games because while we're not specifically the player's agency specifically deciding whether they're going to fight demons next or, or undead. Um, their deck changes every game, and then they take it to the next game, and they take it to the next game, right? So there's a lot of things that you can pull from this and use in your own designs going forward, but I, I think it's an exciting space, and, and you know, it was mind-blowing when, when Legacy came out, um, and it can be applied to lots of things. So. Well, very good. Um, Paul? Well, this question is for you. What are some tips that you have for new designers? Here's my biggest tip that I that I answer this question with all the time. Um, the best thing a new designer can do is go play games that you wouldn't normally play. And I'm talking like seriously out of your comfort zone. Go play. <coughs> excuse me. Um, go play if you, if you have kids or nieces or nephews. Go play the games they're playing. Um, if you're like, if somebody's like, if you hear about a farm bill, whatever the current farm bill or candy crush is, and you're like, I would never play that game, that is exactly the game you should go play. <laughs> because you will learn more um, about how games work by being outside your comfort zone and by seeing the things that happen there. You will learn, when you play a kid's game, you will learn about things like um, how kids approach games and the fact that you can't use the uh, the arrow keys on the keyboard because kids can't use those. And just learning that lesson that kids can't use the arrow keys on the keyboard will just blow your mind as far as making your games cleaner, more elegant, um, and and more fun for people to interact with and to use. So, yeah, the best advice I can give you is go play games that you wouldn't normally play. That's great advice. Eric, uh, let's see you top that. <laughs> well, I think I've... I've done this question twice on the show, so I want to. Try I was to just gonna say you gotta come up with a third one now. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll give you two. Um, what? One is, one's a simple one. 
uh, and this is, uh, I guess, take this with a grain of salt, but still take it. Um, if you're a new designer working on your first game, I, I honestly, sincerely advise you to throw it away and start working on another one. Uh, your first game is never going to be as good as you think it is. It's probably been living in your head way too long. Um, and you can come back to it later if you want, but the act of getting, of dropping that game and coming and having to design another game is a big part of what's going to help you decide whether you are a game designer or not or whether you're somebody who's just got a really cool game idea that they want to get published. Both are very viable. Both, um, most of us are in the first category, um, but that's how you find out. Um, the second one I would, uh, that I'd give is uh, pure practical and find a way, if at all possible, to go work at a game store, a, a friendly local game store or, like, not GameStop or EB, but, like, a, a, you know, a comic book store or a game store that sells games and does organized play. Work there, become an employee, um, and just if teach people how to play games for a, in that store environment. Just teach and teach and teach and teach. Run events, do all that stuff, do ordering with the retailers, like learn about what the industry thinks about games. And it's one of these, it doesn't sound like practical advice for game designers, but so much of what we do is product design. Uh, game design, of course, we have, you know, we all want to make games that are fun, replayable, all that stuff, but we do have to make commercial products that will sell, right? That's if you want to do this professionally. And the perspective of the retailer is, like, I, I worked for a retailer for three years, and I've learned more in that time, I think, than I've worked from any, ac from any book, any um, academic study or course that I took. Um, and secondly, I got, to, I got to test the games that I was working on in a completely uncaring environment, right? We're not surrounded by my friends, where nobody was invested in your well-being, uh, sometimes quite the opposite. They didn't, they just don't care. Um, and you need to get beaten up like that the first couple of times you're uh, you're making it, and that's how you again that's how you find out what kind of stuff you're made of. Absolutely, I echo that. Thank you, Eric. Uh, I can yeah. say from personal experience, I've done done them both, so I, I re recommend it. I, I'll also asterisk and say he mentioned uh, game stores, but also game cafes, and I know Eric would agree with that too. If you can get work in a game cafe, that's another way to see a, a, some some of the games. And, a, and, and kind of a, a different market. Even uh, better, games. actually, probably, at this point. Yeah, because you're going to get to teach games, and you're going to see it in action, and, uh, yeah. So, uh, with that said, though, I just want to thank uh, both Eric and Paul uh, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. I can't believe how fast the time went by. Uh, sorry to our viewers that we started a little late. Uh, we had a few technical difficulties. Uh, Anyone who is curious uh, about uh, where Isaac Vega is, uh, we are going to reschedule and get him on another show, uh, and uh, hopefully everything will be uh, all right. Uh, something came up. I don't know the details, but hopefully everything's okay with him. Uh, uh, and I just want to also highlight, next week is our one-year anniversary of the Meeple Startup Show. Yay! So we're very excited about that. We'll be highlighting especially our partners and sponsors and giving them a shout-out and celebrating uh, one year. So uh, with that said, keep making great games. We look forward to playing your game soon. Have a good night.